and welcome back. This week on the Cars Unfiltered podcast, we find out what Mike thinks is appealing. But I'm really a fan of how those F2 uh, front suspensions look. Like if you look at how those A-arms are built, right, they're very appealing. I give a history lesson on England. The English queen owning an Indian car is kind of awkward. And Sal explains windshield hygiene. <laughs> it's actually because I have a very high standard of windshield cleanliness. And now, the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Cars Unfiltered podcast, season three, episode 15. It's cold, but we're back. We are back. Yeah, it is cold. I just let the dog out and I just about froze my nipples off. Yeah, it's like 12 degrees Fahrenheit here. I don't know what it is. Sal's in Chicago right now. Oh, yeah, what's up yeah, in Chicago? Back in Chicago. Uh, colder, it was 8 degrees. Uh, I don't know what it is today, actually, but yesterday it was like 8 degrees, so it was really, really cold. How's that wind chill? You're staying downtown, aren't you? I was downtown. I'm back up in the birds at my parents' house, but, uh, yeah, the wind chill was like negative 10 or something again, Ugh. which is just not fun. Yeah. yeah. Is the river's over down there yet? What's that? I said, is the river froze over down there yet? Uh, I think so. I don't know. I was walking pretty fast by the river, so I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but there was there was on. some ice in it. Yeah, exactly. But uh, and then yeah, and then I'm driving back to Michigan tomorrow, right in time for there's apparently a snowstorm moving through, so that'll be fun. Mm-hmm. There is too. Hopefully, you can get ahead of it. Yeah. So I'm gonna try. I was going to say, what do we have on the topic today, Tom? Yeah, so I was just going to say today we're going to be talking about um, how Jaguar Land Rover is uh, an expensive hobby for Tata. <laughs> and uh, also how um, we're going to talk about some design cues taken from uh, Land Rover to Ford to Kia. And also we'll probably touch on Jim Clark, since we, I think we most of us watched Grand, or I don't know if Styles did, but me and Mike both watched the latest episode of grand tour um and the big segment of a really great segment by richard hammond about jim clark uh i just have to say those old f2 cars are beautiful dude i am uh, a big fan i was so just a little side note but i'm, I'm working on <laughs> little so i'm working on this uh this v12 roadster right that i'm i'm trying to put together plans in my head and whatnot. And I'm uh, very keen on using like 1950s, 1960s, early 1960s, I think style um, F1, F2 suspension with a little modification instead of the shocks being directly attached to the outboard, uh, the outboard end of the A-arms, I'm going to attach them inboard with some belt cranks, kind of like the new F1 cars. Um, But I'm really a fan of how those F2 uh, front suspensions look like if you look at how those a-arms are built right they're very appealing from uh just an aesthetic stand standpoint right and i definitely think i'm going to use that as uh not necessarily a copy of that design but something very similar i think in my uh, roadster cool and we're also going to talk about tailgates because that's stimulating <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I would have said stimulating, but yeah, okay. Right. We'll make it stim- We'll make it entertaining, hopefully. All right. So, what about Tata? I heard they lost a bunch of money. So, yeah, I don't know a ton about it. I know the only thing that I really know is that um, 
Tata, which I believe is an Indian company, right? It is an Indian company. Yes. They, uh, for a while they were known for making the, and I think they still do uh, the Tata Nano, which is the cheapest car you could buy in the world. That's not considered a micro car. Are they the ones that also make those airbags? No, no, it's Takata. Yeah, that's oh, that, yeah. gotcha. It's Takata. My bad. Close, uh, but not exactly right. They, also, a so, different area of the world, but yeah, yeah. Takata, yeah, yeah. Takata's out of Japan. Um, I just pulled up the uh, the article here, and Jag- Jaguar Land, Land Rover hereafter referred to as JLR because it's easier. Um, is part of Tata Motors. Like Tata bought them in their entirety from Ford, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, right? So I have a, a funny a funny stat about that, actually. Okay. Um, I was talking to a guy who basically, like, he's kind of retired, but he goes in, like, Bentley and I think Mercedes and stuff, bring him in for consulting still. So he, like, when I talked to him, he had just gotten back from, like, the Bentley um, – manufacturer like or the bentley factory it's not really a factory though it's like a studio where they build them i don't know whatever they it's like really nice right and uh he was saying he's like yeah when tata bought land rover because you know the royal family all has land rovers right range rovers and and jaguars and stuff and he said he's like yeah they're getting rid of all the the royal family's getting rid of all their jaguars and land rovers i was like really why he's like yeah because tata bought them and the you know the English queen owning an Indian car is kind of awkward. I was like, Oh yeah, because you know, England basically occupied, you know, India for what, 400 years or something like that. Yeah. But, but is there anything left for the queen to own that's still made in a country that they didn't used to own? Well, they're switching Aston. to, yeah, they're switching to like Aston's and, or I guess Bentley's or something like that, or Mercedes even. I'm not sure. Isn't Bentley? I think I think Rolls, I think Rolls Royce are. Um, yeah, but that's. Well, I guess Germany's problematic. Um, <laughs> I think they're doing. I think they're in Rolls. I think Rolls are still built in. Oh, maybe the UK or something. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, so uh, looking at this article, right, uh, JLR is responsible for a loss of 269.93 billion rupees, which is roughly equivalent to $3.8 billion. Oh, so, I was going to say $20. No, yeah, well, not quite. A little bit more than that. Um, which, <laughs> which, interestingly, is so I got to read this whole sentence to make sure it, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, Tata Motors lost this so that's a third quarter loss so that's only one quarter they lost four billion dollars which is more than half its current market cap of 6.1 billion and it's attributed it's attributed mostly to a massive impairment at jlr so it's not entirely jlr but it's the significant contributing factor so i'm curious um so they, they lost money, right? So this, uh, this luxury car brand that is arguably an aspiration for many people to get, right, um, lost money. And I'm curious if it's due to uh, – I'm curious what you guys think it's due to, I guess. Well, does – I yeah, – go ahead. I was just going to say it's really weird to me because I feel like JAG has released some pretty stunning vehicles lately. 
And also Aston, I think, has released some really good vehicles lately. And so my guess is that it's all the R&D that it took to go and create those. And hopefully they catch up. You know, like, like all that R&D to make these, like the DB11, the new Vantage. We're not talking about Aston here. We're, we're talking about or, Jaguar. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, Jaguar. Jaguar. Um, but like, even, so Jaguar has like the E-Pace, the F-Pace, the F-Type, the um, the new, um, actually that was reviewed on the Grand Tour. That, that sounded kind of interesting, albeit a money-losing vehicle, which might be the problem. Um, that XE, whatever it is, the super fast one that they made. So... so- so do you think that it's but, yeah, go ahead, Sal. I was gonna say from my side, I think it's the interesting thing is I say I if I had to take a guess when they're like, well, JLR <clears throat> is losing money for Tata, in my mind, Tata's not managing their operations well enough because it's like you can control how much money they're spending to get to a certain point, right? Like R and D is expensive, don't get me wrong, but I don't know if they're using any revolutionary technology or whatever when they're making them they're just making them too expensive right like and and by making i don't mean making the vehicle cost too expensive i'm saying the cost to make the vehicle right like what are your plants running at right margin because that's four billion dollars in a quarter is not i mean it's not even not insignificant it's a lot of money to just be from poor sales right i don't think this is a poor sales thing and i don't think necessarily that that you know, they're putting in so much technology in it that that's what it costs. I just think they're really bad at making them, right? They're really bad at making them. And so then that drives the cost per vehicle too high or something must, it had to have been some sort of quality campaign, right? So you look at like the Ford and GM that last year, they got demolished by, um, I forgot what it was last year for Ford, but in any case, they're like just thinking like the airbag thing cost everyone billions of dollars. So there had, in my mind, there has to either been mismanagement on operation of that brand, or there had to have been some event that caused a huge recall or reworking or something. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you. Um, from yeah, because so four billion dollars that's that's not an insignificant loss, especially for a quarter, right? Like we're not talking for the year; we're talking third quarter. They lost that much money. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not like a sales like you don't even make that much in sales in a year, right? So I don't in my mind it's not a sales thing. It's a some sort of operation production loss. Which it's it's interesting because obviously up till this point, um Tata had done very well in their home market, right? Uh selling smaller cars, uh similar like the nano, right? For uh, consumers who needed a vehicle to get around, right? And I'm curious because this was the the consideration, I guess, of uh, some of the analysts when the sale went through back when Ford offloaded it. Right? Was how is this fundamental, fundamentally economy minded company going to produce and make money producing? luxury what are what are generally perceived to be luxury vehicles right and i think like you say sal i think they may have their um i think they may have their uh, production misaligned or their uh, their content misaligned to what they think it should be right so they're, they're either there's too much in the vehicle and they end up having to sell them at a loss consistently or 
like you say, there's a quality issue. Uh, but more likely my kids, my thought is probably, um, like you allude to there, a production issue where they're inefficiently running their production because they, they're thinking that, oh, hey, we have to produce this luxury car. And I have no idea, right? I, don't, I know no one at Tata, right? I have no idea what their management style is. But my, um, my thought is that it's, it's definitely possible that the, the management is saying we have to build each one of these cars bespoke, one-off, whatever, right? And so they're, they're allocating more resources to build a given vehicle than they should. And that's not necessarily getting accounted for in the sale price of the car. So yeah, on paper, they may not have too much money in the car from a material standpoint, but they may have a lot of material in the car or a lot of labor in the car, right? From a production standpoint, which may not be accounted for depending on how they operate, right? It just depends on how they classify. Although I will say to, to Tom's point, right, I just had a cursory look on JLR on uh, our friends over at Jalopnik, just because that's where I get most of my car news, unfortunately. Um, and a lot of the articles do seem to be like Jaguar investing in electric vehicle development, Jaguar investing in autonomous vehicle development, Jaguar investing in hybrids for every, like they do seem to be spending a lot of money in trying to investigate um, like new technology or whatever, when they really should just be fixing their uh, air suspension. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, to, 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 it's a combination of things, but yeah, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's mismanagement in my mind of you don't lose that much because it's not selling, right? You lose that much because you're spending way too much developing new things or buying new operations or whatever and not just not being mindful of it. Well, and some of that could could come along with increased costs in Europe that they didn't necessarily bank on uh, being a fundamentally Indian company, right? Um, because, Brexit. well, not not necessarily Brexit, but that's that's definitely something to consider, right? Um, but it's just like that's that's something that's a kind of an easy miss when you put together some of these business cases for doing you know producing something in in a given place or whatever. Um, like exchange rates and, and different labor rates are, they're an easy miss, right? Like you have to that's have a pretty a robust. Miss. Like that's have, a big percentage miss for that. It, it, it is, but you have to have a very robust um, business case development department, right? Like you have to have guys in your company that, that do that on a regular basis. And I don't know, I think JLR was Tata's first expansion outside for a, a new automaker outside India, wasn't it? I don't know. I think so. I um, and if that's the case, it could have been a miss, right? Or it could have been it could have been calculated at the wrong percentage rate, right? Like they could have calculated an exchange rate in whatever, two thousand three dollars when they made the deal. And then in two thousand six, I don't know that these are the right years, right? So don't don't harp on those. But then in two thousand six the exchange rate might have been completely different, right? And they could have got fucked. Maybe. I think this is kind of telling though, the, the CFO, this is a comment of the CFO on the earnings call, but he's basically said after announcing that uh, miss, um, he says, we are now taking, we are now taking clear and decisive actions in JLR to step up its competitiveness, reduce costs and improve cash flows and make the business fit for the future. Like that to me shows. Yeah, that doesn't mean anything though. That's just fucking corporate speak to say, hey, we fucked up, but we got a plan to fix it, even though it doesn't, they don't have a plan to fix it. 
Well, well, but to, but to, I think to where Tom's get, personally is that yeah, it looks like it's an internal management thing. It's not like just sales or something. Although sales slump, like I think he's admitting there's operational inefficiencies. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's yeah. I would agree with that. That statement definitely says operational inefficiencies, especially him saying like now. So that kind of to me implies yeah. like either that is a cover up kind of talk to like just say oh we're just owning this now whatever to on the call. But you know that implies that the last few years maybe JLR like you know wasn't paid attention to it quite enough as it was before. Yeah, right. So which is so, also funny because I did find an article just real fast to end it uh, from 2015. Uh, November saying JLR launches $6.8 billion cost cutting plan. So clearly that did not not meet, right? And it's the same, same basic thing. But in any case. So uh, JLR obviously has problems, right? They've had problems since at least 2015 when they launched their initial cost cutting measure, right? Um. But there's at least a few things that they do correctly, right, or have done right, um, which may or may not be attributable to, to them and their design team. But um, what do you think about the overall design of the, especially the the Land Rovers, which seem there the design language from the the Land Rover seems to have crept into more than one manufacturer's uh, design language, right? So, like, I don't remember when the first uh, land when the first refreshed Land Rover came out, but do you remember that time when it came out and it had the hood that was bent over the sides a little bit, right? And then Ford's Ford's Explorer a couple of years later, a year or so later, came out and it was very similar. And now Kia, which is generally you think of it as a knockoff of Ford stuff, because let's be honest, a lot of it is, uh, looks very similar now to like the Ford Explorer and the Land Rover. And there's I don't know, are there more examples? Uh, yeah, the the first one that I really noticed from Kia, like going back up the scale, I guess a little bit, was the uh, like basically it looked like they copied the Escape, like a lot of the same window lines, a lot of the same, you know. Yeah, but that's not attributable to the JLR. Uh, so I think there's a little bit of that taken from the Evoke, the Land, the Range Rover Evoke. Oh, um, not a ton, but I think there's definitely like some features um, that were kind of like you know passed through there. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely more noticeable, I think, in the uh, like the Range Rover Sports with you know the Explorer and then the Kia Telluride now. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely kind of interesting. Now, keep in mind that in my mind that started happening a lot when right after um, Ford had invested in or bought or whatever um, JLR, right when they were still owning that the luxury brands or whatever right so a lot of that design language got there um from that right and it was from what i understand from what i've read about it at least it was mostly it was like a three-way trade-off right so ford copied design language from land rover and jaguar right jaguar was especially influential on the fusion slash mondeo platform and then we Sorry, so yeah, that's off, but, so, but so was Aston at the time, right? Because at the time, Ford owned yeah. Aston too, right? And so some of those, uh, particularly the grill uh, design elements, right, from Aston kind of came through in the Ford design. Like yeah. That. But anyway. Yeah, and then obviously, yeah, and then we we basically, well, I say we, Ford basically taught them how to mass manufacture vehicles, which was the big information that a lot of them didn't have, even Volvo, right? They didn't know how to do mass manufacturing and be profitable, which is ironic these days because you don't think of the big <laughs> three as profitable. 
Um, but in any case, but there is also a second thing that goes into it, which is some of the design language is actually driven by um, regulation, right? Not all of it, not all of it, right? But so, for example, the high belt line is driven by cr from crash tests, right? In the rear end uh, of the vehicles, right? A lot of that stuff and the height and the trunk height and all that is driven by, so like, for example, the tiny rear windshield is driven by um, crash tests wording this right so in order to pass the crash test there has to be a certain amount of height for the top of the trunk or something and that's why you see the height belt line so i think there is a little element of that um but yeah i mean and just spending some time looking at the new explorers right they look a lot like the range rover sport right they they tapered the back end a lot and they looked at it but uh but yeah but i mean i guess to some extent and i'm not a car designer or whatever right and i think mike's had some time looking at car designs and tom you know a lot more hyper cars, which tend to be a little bit different, but for regular cars, like, have we reached a point where it's like, it's very, it's, in my mind, it's very hard to have a design that's completely unique or brand new or really fresh. Right. No, I, it's, I agree with you that it's, it's very difficult. Um, and these, these crash tests, like, I get it, right. There's regulations. I, I understand the need for regulations. Um, you know, pedestrian safety and things like that have been responsible for a lot of those rounding of the corners on the hoods, particularly, and some of the uh, some of the disassociative features between like the grill and the hood. So instead of the the hood just closing and overlapping the grill like it does on a '60s Mustang, right now you have the grill slopes back, and there might be um, uh, like a separate a separate piece between really the grill and where the hood starts. And I noticed this the other day when I was driving down the road and a, a, it was like a 2016 Malibu, right? Was driving next to me or behind me or something. And I saw it in the mirror and the hood on the, that particular car just does not look like it should be there. Right. You have, <laughs> it kind of looks like an afterthought because if, if you were to remove the hood, there'd just be this, this hole right between um, the windshield and this other colored piece of metal that isn't the grill that's really like should be part of the hood in what you think is the hood in your head you know what i'm saying and oh, there's, yeah. a part, yeah. there's a parting line there and it's like what the fuck is that for and it's obviously for pedestrian safety right but yeah it, it i think the, the camaros have that too right yeah i think so yeah Man, it's like because you're talking about it's like a, it's like there's a lip running all the way around, right? Yeah, is that exactly. what you're talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. It just creates something that, like, I would never buy a car specifically because of that feature, right? If I saw that in a lot, I'd be like, it's, it's not for me, man. Like this line just doesn't work. The the Corvette even has something kind of similar. Like that whole front plate is like one, it it's bigger on the Corvette actually. Like it goes yeah, up. But the Corvette, you kind of give a pass, right? Because the Corvette used to have that rear opening uh, hood, right? So you're yeah. kind of used to that on a Corvette. You're not, you're not used to it on a lot of other cars. Yeah. And actually, the Camaro, it's huge. I never noticed that before. That is bizarre. Like, that is, that is weird yeah. looking. I mean, I knew it existed before, but I never really looked at it. And then, like I so said, yesterday I was driving around, and I was like, holy fuck, I would never buy that car. <laughs> yeah, that is super weird. But at the same time... Right, moving into the electric future, how many times are you going to have to go in under your hood? 
Well, that's true. So at and that point, many, it will be it will be an afterthought. And how many times are you going to hit pedestrians because they can't hear you coming? So, <laughs> ooh, and it's true. And it's true. <laughs> oh yeah, the Camaros is yeah exactly the same. That's a, that's a better uh, a better show of it. But they hide it a little better in the Camaro because it's a little more angular. You know that whole front's a little more angular in general, mm-hmm. whereas the Malibu is a bit more rounded. And that's uh, what's what is the point of this? Like, is that like? Yeah. What's the point? So the Ford Fusion has that too. Okay, kind of. It's like, so yeah. It's for pedestrian safety, right? So the idea is that uh, there needs to be one. You have to hit the pedestrian like below the knee or something like that with the bumper, or maybe it's above the knee. I don't remember where, but there's a specific height that you that the bumper has to be at, right? For other cars and also for uh, pedestrians. But then the top of the hood's been raised up so much too because. The idea is uh, you have to roll, the, the, the pedestrian needs to be rolled onto the hood versus under the car, right? Which is why you don't see hoods that jut out very much and come back down. That, that, let me put it here, that jut out and then come back under, right? Rather, you see uh, hoods that slope down because if you hit a pedestrian, they need to be flipped onto the hood versus flipped under the car. Hmm. Yeah, I'd probably also say that there's if you talk to some of the engineers, there's probably an aerodynamic benefit, right? So then you don't yeah, get probably. hoodless. Probably. But but yeah, I mean most of the stuff, if you had to throw a stone at something, right, it would be pedestrian safety. Almost a lot of the stuff, including like the high belt lines that Mike doesn't like either, right? That the window of your Mustang now goes up to like your ear, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that has to do with with um, crash tests, right? It's all sort of crash crash stuff, but. Uh, hmm. But yeah, back to the design language. I mean, that, that drives so much of it. But yeah, I mean, in my mind, I think it's a bit of a case of there's only so many designs you can come up with, right? And there's some design features that work better than others or whatever. But because uh, I mean, if you think about it, right, if you take back to the Genesis, not saying they look the same, but it's like, okay, when the Mustang came out, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you guys know your history better than I do, right? The Camaro wasn't out, right? Correct. The Camaro had not been made yet. Camaro's yep. after the Mustang. Yeah. Right. So to some extent, they looked at it and they looked at like their car, right? They looked at their Impala or whatever, which I don't think actually I don't know if that was around, but whatever. They looked at their car and they said, "Hey, we need something sporty looking like that." And although it wasn't identical at the time, someone was like, "Hey, that Camaro looks like a Mustang," right? Because it's just like that was the genesis of the pony car. Right, to some extent. Yeah, and yeah, you're not incorrect, right? Because there was that, um, I mean, the Mustang was was the first car to, the first, and they call it a pony car, because it was the first car to really use that uh, short, trunk, long hood design, right? Whereas before yeah. that, it was, always, it was always the three boxes, right? There was a long hood, there was yeah. a passenger compartment, and there was a trunk that was the same size as the hood, right? Uh, or like a slant back design or whatever. So yeah. Uh, so there's there's always a genesis of it, but yeah, I mean the design cues I think to some extent are getting copied, which I will actually credit, for example, Tesla to. I think Teslas in general were pretty recognizable. Yeah, yeah, Teslas definitely have a, a pretty good design language that differentiates them from other vehicles. So, I'd, say, I'd agree with that. So I just went to Ford.com and they have like their little vehicle drop down thing. And I went to cars, right? So you have the Fiesta, the Focus, the Fusion, the Mustang, and the Taurus sitting there, right? And they're all 
lined up across there. Yeah. I set this piece of paper on there, like from the Fiesta to the Taurus, lined it up. And if you take the tops off of all those cars, it is very difficult to tell which one is which. Oh yeah, for sure. The only yeah. thing that's really different is the wheelbase. Yeah. But that's but that's very that's like that's purposeful branding, right? They want everything to look the same. It's even the new explorers have that hexagonal grill, right? Mm-hmm. And they actually do we also make sure that the horns all sound the same pretty much when you open and close it. They even want door sound when the door closes to sound the same throughout the Ford um, family. So yeah, I mean it's very the only one that breaks a mold really is the F one fifty. Right. And then that has its own design language through the F series. Right. You basically have F series and then you have your Ford because even the transit, the new transit has that hexagonal grill. Right. So it's basically hexagonal grill vehicles and F series. Yeah. Yeah. You're not right. You're, you're not wrong. Um, and most manufacturers have something similar. Right. Like Jags are, yeah. are similarly designed. Right. Land Rovers are similarly designed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I would um, I would look at Tom as an experiment. In that case, even the Camaro, to some extent, um, has the what I'll for lack of a better term, the snow plow. Right. It comes to a point on the mm-hmm. front and then it has the the sloped front. And then it has like, I mean, some of them have the fender flares or whatever, but the, the GMs are the same, right? They have the, the kind of arrow-y front design language. Yeah. And Dodge, I don't know what they're doing anymore. For the most part, they just have high horsepower. <laughs> yeah. They do, Which, and, but they do actually, what they want. And, and I, know, I don't want, yeah, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but actually I think that was what originally when a lot of us saw the first must, the first new generation Mustang, that turned us off from it because then that started to look like a Ford. Right? Whereas for a long time, you couldn't get anything that resembled a, like a Ford logo on a Mustang, right? It was the Mustang. It was its own thing. It looked different. Now it looks like a sporty Taurus to some extent, right? And it's grown on, on me a lot. But I think that's what caught a lot of people off guard, especially the grill started to look very Fordy and less like it's its Mustang, it's its own deal, right? Whatever. Yeah. Okay, so while we're talking about design, I want to talk about race cars a little bit. So this this week okay. on the Grand Tour, right, they brought up Jim Clark, who is arguably the best race car driver of all time. And after they, uh, I think Richard Hammond did this segment, and after the uh, after the the little spiel or introduction, anyways, they brought up some numbers, and the dude has more titles than fucking Michael Schumacher, right, or more uh, Grand Slams, I guess, than fucking Michael Schumacher, which should tell you something since the dude died at what, like 35 or 36, right? 32. Yeah, okay. So the dude was in the prime of his career and died, and he was already, he already had racked up more Grand Slam wins, which I forget what that means in racing. But it was it means um, you led every lap, you finished first, and you set the lap record. Mm-mm-mm. And you qualified first too, I think. Maybe, yeah. But, um, but anyways, the dude had eight, and Michael Schumacher has like five. And Ayrton yeah. Senna had four. So that tells you something because Ayrton Senna is generally considered to be one of the best race car drivers of all time as well, who also died young. Um, but anyway, uh, he died in a Lotus, right? And it, uh, it was an F2 series. So you have certain specs that you have to meet, right? As far as power, weight, et cetera, et cetera, wheelbases, whatever, right? Like race cars are, are highly defined what they have to be in order to enter into a series. 
And then, you know, you, you change them by tuning or by um, weight distribution or whatever it is, right? Like you change little things here and there. And uh, the comment was made that the Lotus, it was generally considered to be a fragile uh, chassis, right? So as, as a car, many race drivers were kind of scared of it because they broke it fairly often. And when it, you know, when you break it 160, 180 miles an hour, that's, that's not a small thing, right? That's way different than breaking it fucking 40 miles an hour. Um, and I, I don't have, I'm, this, this isn't a leading uh, comment or question or anything. I'm just curious uh, what your guys' thoughts are in why, like why that would be, right? Like what, what in, what's inherent in a chassis that would make uh, people think that it's, more fragile, right? Aside, from, obviously, aside from build quality or whatever. But I don't think the Lotus was never a poorly, uh, a poorly designed vehicle, right? Like when they performed, they won. Like they fucking won a lot, right? They still win a lot. So, my fragile. My guess, would, since and like Sal has an engineering background to like to go into this deeper, probably. But my guess is like Lotus is always known for being light and their suspension stuff. Right. And these cars have open wheel, you know, opens everything suspension. And I'm guessing that it might have to do with like Lotus trying to, you know, change weight distribution within the guidelines or, you know, the things of that nature. And maybe that's why, you know, why that was happening. That's my guess. Yeah. I mean, without knowing I, I would agree I was gonna say in my mind they probably just it was they lightweighted it so much that a lot of times you'll have redundancy in chassis design or whatever you'll have like a flange that you'll design extra material into to get a stronger bend moment in it right to resist bending or whatever so my guess is they just went as lightweight as possible so they were flirting on the edge of their structure breaking right so for example when you design anything right let's say you're designing a structure you'll say that I need it to last 1500 cycles of a road load of 900 newton meters, whatever, right? They probably designed it to 1500 cycles, whereas another race team would say, if I'm gonna experience 1500, I'm gonna design it for 2000, right? So they could basically, they're pushing their structural integrity to its minimal limit to get the most weight out of the vehicle, right? To say, okay, I can only, so there's a chance that they won't finish the race and they know they won't because their structure or their suspension or whatever is built to barely finish races. Yeah, right? sure. Especially with a race car where you tear it down every race. After every race, you would tear it down, replace components, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it'd be, it, I'd liken it, I'd, I'd liken it to like, Mike, you know, plane design, right? So, Let's say you designed a plane that you knew could fly once, right? There would be a company that says, I'm only going to make one flight. I'm only going to buy expensive enough materials to make this one flight, right? Or gas, gasoline to, to get rid of this thing, right? Do you, when, you fill, when you go to work, do you fill your car with exactly the amount of miles per gallon that you think it's going to get to work? Or do you fill with a little bit more just in case you hit traffic? Yeah, Right. That's, that's what I think it likens it to without knowing the details, right? In my mind, they probably just lightweighted it so much that there was always a chance that if something was a little bit off, that chassis could just break, right? So, so that was one of the comments, too, by um, 
his his manager or uh, or pit crew boss or whatever you want to call him, right? So, but they, they interviewed some of the people that he he worked with, right? That were on his race team, and uh, some of the comments by some of those guys were that he was just so smooth in his driving style that he could finesse basically they didn't yeah. use the term finesse but he could basically finesse the car around the track for whatever 500 miles right whereas some of the other guys were harsher on which yeah that would make that would make your point uh more valid i guess or not more valid but it, it would uh support reinforce the point, the point. Yeah, reinforce yeah. The point, right because uh yeah i mean if, if you're not as smooth you're gonna induce more stress or more cycles or whatever, right? If you're not smooth coming out of the corner, you may have to overcorrect, which may put two more cycles on that steering column or whatever it is, right? Which it makes it that much closer to failure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. Or, or like, or like a, the opposite example without, again, I'm not a race car guy, just whatever I've seen or whatever. You look at someone like Adrian Senna, right? He was probably driving his tire engineers crazy because he was pushing it to the limit all the time right he was consistently pushing his car to the limit so the stresses they're seeing right so the weight distribution on the car so if you're talking about like driving it smoothly if adrian senna's pushing it around the corner right it's going to create a lot more wear on the tires a lot more wear on suspension it's going to put a lot more load on one side of the structure than if you ease off of the gas going into it right if adrian's constantly pushing it and hitting gas as hard as he can and hitting turns as hard as he can it puts a lot more stress on the vehicle and then it forces you to over design um, your structure and everything, right? Beef up everything for a higher safety factor. Yeah, I agree. And, and the big thing with Clark too is like he was able, so this is the reason, the only reason I have to relate to this is like I used to uh, ride dirt bikes and I was started out on a, like a 125 and then I went up to a 250 and the way that you ride those two motorcycles is extremely different, especially, well, not, I mean, just in general, the 125 has so much less power that you have to carry momentum, you know, two turns, three turns ahead sometimes. And that was something, I think that's what the real magic that Jim Clark had was he was able to carry momentum. And if you carry momentum efficiently, it's usually less stressful on the vehicle. And so I think- You also get a faster time. Yeah. Whereas if you have a vehicle with more power, um, it, you actually like, you can make up for your mistakes. And so you tend to like, so like a 250, you can make up for your mistakes by twisting the throttle a little bit more. So you tend to like, uh, I guess, gamble more with trying to, you know, hit a line harder or do things and then you make a mistake, but oh, well, then, you know, catch up. So, you know, these little cars that at, at the beginning, they mentioned too, in the grand tour that they only had like 210 horsepower, you know, they weighed basically nothing. So that was a lot, but, um, you know, eventually they got to be more and more power. But yeah, if you, you know, if that's kind of where you started, where you have to get really good at carrying momentum. The other thing is if you watch his video, the video that they showed of him driving, like the edges of the tarmac and where his wheels were was ridiculous. Oh no, he knew exactly how large his car was. That was amazing. Like, yeah, I, I can't even imagine. Like, I mean, I guess you could only do some of that to that level of precision with an open wheel car, but like, like that, that was incredible. Like just, he come, you know, I don't know, 120, 130 miles an hour, you know, taking like, you know, chicanes and stuff and being like pr- probably nicking the edge of the dirt. Like there's dirt and rocks and stuff on the edge that, you know, if one wheel gets caught in or bogged down, like that'll 
create enough drag to spin the car. And he's like, just like probably brushing sidewall on it. Like it's, it's crazy. Yeah, if, if any of our listeners don't watch uh, the grand tour or haven't looked up uh, Clark at all, look him up, watch some of his, watch some of his videos, watch some of the in-car footage or whatever. It's uh, it's definitely worth looking into. Yeah. They picked some really good clips in the grand tour because you could definitely feel like, you know, the precision to carry the momentum, you know, as he was driving. So that's definitely, definitely something to pay attention to, too. If you autocross or, you know, it's worth watching the videos just to kind of try and pick up some tricks that, you know, you might see. It's a shame that he, uh, it's a shame that he died as young as he did for sure. Yeah. Yep. So speaking of things that you may or may not pay attention to, um, we want to talk about, and we're going to create a new segment called, is it a gimmick? Uh, with Mike. Um, so our, our Slack channel blew up this week as we were uh, discussing the, uh, the gimmickiness or not of certain features of vehicles. So just to start off, Mike, do you have it handy? Do you have the definition of a gimmick uh, according to Webster's or whatever pulled up yeah, so yeah. that we can inform our listeners before we start this conversation on what uh, we mean when we say a gimmick. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, when I talk about a no, gimmick, no, when, no, that's what's what the saying. dictionary thing? When, when when I talk about a gimmick, I am talking about the dictionary definition of gimmick, which is it's a noun, and I I quote, a trick or device intended to attract attention, publicity, or business. Also. See synonyms, synonyms, sorry, scheme, trick, dodge, ploy, stratagem, uh, uh, etc. That's or, funny that dodge is on there. Dodge is a gimmick. <laughs> that was like the perfect. <laughs> well, this whole conversation, dear uh, listeners, started because we were talking about dodge. Again, the irony is great there. And also, I'm sure that the listeners can appreciate how my segment talked about attention and it's in the definition of it. But in any case, um, this whole thing started with basically Dodge introduced the idea of a 60-40 opening tailgate and not only opening conventionally folding flat, but what I'll call like a, a conventional door opening, right? A, a swinging gate that swings open like a conventional um, door and it's 60-40. And that's, so the argument that... That's usually called a swing gate, Sal. <laughs> I, I did say it. I said a swing gate in there somewhere. Um, but basically we're arguing over when that would be useful. And Mike's argument was never. It's a gimmick. It's meant to sell extra vehicles. It is 100% meant to sell extra vehicles and it's a gimmick. (laughs) I stand stand by my, my assessment. As a proud truck owner myself, let's get that out of the way. As a proud (laughs) truck owner, I, fi- I would find a decent amount of usability out of it because if you're trying to get something like I'll keep uh, just the other day, I had washer fluid that I need to get at and I keep it in the bed of my truck. I have uh, a very fancy divider known as a large piece of two by six that keeps stuff in the front of my bed. Um, but I just wanted to get that. Now I have a tonneau cover because I'm again, a fake truck owner. If you ask, uh, Mike, but I have a tonneau cover so that prohibits me from just reaching over and getting in. So if I want to get to it, I have to open the tailgate and nine times out of 10, I am standing on what I'll say the corner on a diagonal to get something out of my bed. 
so I don't have to reach over the tailgate to grab something. So if I had a swinging gate, I would be right on top of it, and it would be just so much easier. Yeah, but if you didn't have a tunnel cover, then you wouldn't need a, a swing gate like that. So if I didn't have a tunnel cover, my my windshield washer, uh, my windshield washer fluid would get snow and rained on, Mike. Arguably, most people that use their truck keep their windshield washer fluid in the garage somewhere because <laughs> otherwise that bottle's going to get punctured when they throw a two by four in. <laughs> also, the window washer if, fluid containers, like in the truck, like are gigantic. So if you fill it up, you won't have to do it for like ten years. Yeah, it's a while. It's like a gallon. You could pour that it's whole not, gallon. It's not ten years. It's definitely not ten years. And actually, it just That's came up because I didn't have driving. to fill it in mine. Yeah. <laughs> It's actually because I have a very high standard of windshield cleanliness. Um, <laughs> windshield hygiene. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, exactly. So in my mind, and this was my argument when we were talking about it, there was an issue that someone had with getting into the vehicle that could have been improved by adding the swing gate. Ergo, it's not a gimmick, meaning it's not tricking anyone into buying things they don't need. It's solving an issue that's available there if you need it, right? It's like the, like, okay, I found another example that we didn't talk about. Those side storage on the side of the bed that Dodge has, right? Is that a gimmick? You have a whole bed to store shit in, but you need that little side cubby hole or whatever the hell it is to store shit in. Is that a gimmick? Yes. So actually, so I would, so here's the <laughs> thing with that. Here's the thing with those, and I'm going to defend your Tonino cover. The thing with, that is important that I know about from a construction standpoint, okay, and having worked in construction a little bit, construction, you end up going all over the place, right? So that doesn't mean, it, it means that you're uh, in all types of different communities, okay? Some communities, you know, are have more uh, economical issues than others, okay? And so when they see this, like, vehicle pulling up with, like, thousands of dollars of tools in the back of it, it kind of looks like Christmas. Now, <laughs> the the interesting thing is, like, um, and Rivian, I think, has an interesting solution to this, albeit not as, like, usable. Um, you need a place to be able to lock your stuff up. Uh, you know, SUVs, it's nice, except for all the windows where people can see it and break it anyway. But with a truck, um, there wasn't always, like, the opportunity for that because a lot of construction guys got regular cabs anyway and, and everything, right? So those side boxes on the Dodge are kind of cool because they're a lockable area. Uh, Ford had it back in the, uh, you know, the 70s with one of the camper uh, F-250s, F-150s. Um, and then Rivian has that weird tube through the back of the, you know, the under the seat, basically. So, I mean, you know, and then if you have a tonneau cover, you need to lock up everything. It's just, it's just nice to be able to, to do that. Well, while we have this quick commercial break of looking at Daisy and Mike's Anytime Fitness shirt. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> Mike uh, didn't even go to Anytime Fitness today. No, but, but hey, what about the... Your shirt, that you're committed to the shirt. You can't get rid of it once you cut the sleeves off until it's completely... I know, Mike. We, we, we are directly staring just at your chest and at Daisy. I know. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe the shop dog needed some, some screen time. Um, but what about lock boxes, right? So trucks have, you go to those big, like, whatever, the diamond plate lock boxes, right? Because I don't think you'd be able to fit your full toolbox in one of those side cubbies. I don't know. I haven't been one, no, but can no, you fit can. like a, 
No, you can fit like, like blueprints. <laughs> oh no, they're oh, here's, pretty I, big. No, they're, they're like really deep. They're actually like pretty usable on the dodges. No, yeah, that, they really are. Depth jo- is dodge not what I'm worried good. about. Yeah, dodges did a pretty good job with that. Oh, but why don't you just get a lockbox in your bed? You should. Actually, lockboxes. So then. So the problem with a lockbox is, uh, unless you have an eight up foot your bed, bed, real estate. Yeah, unless you have an eight foot bed. And even with an eight-foot bed, but you lose two feet of fucking space anytime you have a lockbox, right? And they've got the narrow ones, but they suck. Tom knows. He used to have a lockbox on his pickup, his F-150. And it was yep. useful, wasn't it? Like it kept shit out of the rain and whatnot, but they're a no, bitch. It, you have to climb it, in the bed. It kept things locked away, and albeit not that well, because like it was only like a four-pin tumbler lock in there. But oh. uh, it also didn't keep things dry because it was a metal one, and all it had was like this one by thing of foam that was supposed to be glued around the edge of the lid that always like froze and fell off. So no, it didn't work great. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, you could throw things in it, I guess. So I would argue it's still the tailgate opening is not a gimmick it's because it solved an issue that someone had. No, nope. it only solves an issue that somebody created themselves. It's a marketing ploy to sell more vehicles. It's the same. <laughs> It's the same as fucking auto okay. dealers and shit. Like, Wait, like it, it comes, we're gonna. It's a it's a way for the auto company to charge you more money to make more money off the vehicle, right? Because that tailgate, you're gonna option out that your truck with that tailgate, right? That tailgate probably costs them, I don't know. Let's say that tailgate costs them three hundred bucks, right? And the other tailgate, the standard tailgate, costs them one hundred and twenty-five. Okay, that's fine. But the package you're gonna have to buy in order to get that tailgate is gonna cost you. $1,800 because you're not just going to be able to get that tailgate. You're going to have to option it out with a tonneau cover and you're going to have to option it out with the optional bed lights that go underneath the tonneau cover because you got to see in there if you're going to have this tailgate that swings open from the side and you're going to have to do a bunch of other things. It's purely a marketing ploy to sell more vehicles yeah, and attract attention to their, to their brand. That's it. hundred percent. But so, okay. So, so our, um, is miles per gallon, our hybrid gimmicks, because you created an issue that you didn't live close enough to work. No one forced you to live far from work. You did. And so now you have to waste more gas. So you need more range. And by the way, if you get the hybrid, you can only get it on the higher packages. You can't get it on the lower packages. So, or heated seats. Are they a gimmick? You created the issue by living in a cold environment where you need to warm your car before you get in. Or you don't. Are heated seats a gimmick? He I, 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 I kind of, I personally kind of draw the line at, uh, at um, environmental controls because let's be honest. You, you didn't have to live here. It's true. You didn't it's, have to live here. You are, you are correct. It's I feel true. like, I feel like that those are all hints. I feel like, like maybe I shouldn't be so far away from work. Maybe, maybe I should. I do. Yeah. I've solved some of these things, but not all of them. <laughs> And we talked, and we talked about in the Slack. We take this to the logical where if you keep drilling down, Tom, you will eventually get to. I need to walk to work. I need to live in the place. Well, I don't so even I need to walk do to that. Work. And yeah, as far as well, you do from the bedroom to your office at least, unless oh, you do awesome. all your work in bed. But no. which yeah. is a topic for a different podcast. Um, but in any case, yeah, no. So don't worry about it, Mike. In about forty years, we're all going to. Detroit is going to have the same climate as Florida, right? Yeah, That's what they've all said. So in 40 years, we won't need to cheat it. Only people living in like Alberta will need it for like three days. 
So, so I have to ask this, not to like beat a dead horse on this particular topic. <clears throat> I have two questions, but I'll ask the first one first. Are dead why, horses a gimmick? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> why, <laughs> 60, out of them. why 60 40? <clears throat> like, why is the Dodge tailgate split? Like, why not 50 50? Like, why 60 50 runs into the handle? You can't make it 50 50. Oh, that's pretty good. And also, and also, <laughs> and also, sixty forty because their uh, one of their arguments is that it makes it easier to get into the bed if you have to get into the bed because you could step on the bumper and the bumper has a cutout for the um, one for the hitch, but mostly for the license plate, right? And so you could access that step. Whereas if it was fifty fifty, that'd be kind of awkward to hit. So at can sixty I, forty, it makes sense. Can I also point out too? Like, I'm not exactly sure how long the sixty part is. But looking at like a picture of like how far it sticks out, if you have a trailer on, you know, that has like one of those jack things that doesn't rotate down or like, like propane. Well, they, say it doesn't hit. they say it doesn't hit. That's their uh, argument. Is, their argument is that it's usable with a trailer. Whereas I got some was, trailers to show them then. I can. No, trust yeah. me. I know. I know too. <laughs> but, but, Tom, but it is. That's your issue. That's your issue for buying that specific type of trailer. You should uh, fix that issue by buying the correct style of trailer. You're but right. damn it, then you have to buy something else, so then it is a gimmick. Son of a bitch. Right, I have to buy a different trailer for a different set of – so i got to buy a different kind of jet ski that fits on the different trailer. Yeah, I see how it goes. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. right. I hope Dodge is right. getting a percentage from Yamaha. That's all I'm saying. And the, and the consumerism market spins round. Yep. So if you guys – okay, so if you guys had to get one, okay, would you get the Dodge 6040, okay, or the Chevy multi-step or the Ford, just the normal pull-out step? None. I said you had to get one, get the, Mike. You'd honestly, get the Chevy one. Honestly, I think, I think the Chevy one would probably be, yeah, my choice. Because my old, man's got the, one. my old man's got the one with the step. And the problem with the one with the step is that fucking handle. Because it, the, the Ford one comes with a handle that pulls up from the top of the tailgate. And if you ever tried to slide anything into the bed, it always gets stuck on the fucking handle. Yeah. The new, the new version of that, the handle slides out from where the step is, so you don't have that anymore. Oh, that, okay. Then yeah. I'd get that. Yeah, I'd get that then. I'd get the 60-40. I don't need to climb into my bed if no, I can man, just get at it. From the- I, have put, <laughs> I have put like at least 1,000 pounds of shit on I the tailgate. Me. And I said me. Break that sixty forty split. It's Sal's choice, Mike. I said me. It's let I Sal, said me. Yeah, let him let Sal have it. Fine. I think we've provided no consumer consensus here because I would probably go with the Chevy one, aside from the fact that I know it's overcomplicated and stuff's gonna break eventually. Like I just like the uh, the okay. multifunction of it. I also have to, as a disclaimer, say oh, that like, I have a leather one here too. You're talking <laughs> about the. You're talking about the new, new one. I thought we were talking about the Chevy, like the just the the foothold. No, the you know, like the bumper has the foothold. No, the, the oh yeah, no that's. Whenever I see that multifunction one, I just think there's multiple ways for that to break. Oh, yeah, like it's multiple multifunctionally ways to break. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would go with the sixty forty because more times out of not, I just have to grab something from the front of my bed, then I need to lay something very large down. You know, you know how you could solve on that. The How's that? Just take the tailgate off? No, you could just buy a sedan because, you know, it'd be more useful mm. for your use case. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Probably. Probably. 
Why didn't you take your yeah. truck to Chicago? Something about not fitting in parking garages? Oh, I can relate yeah, to that. Yeah, but that's the city's fault. Yeah. That's the city's fault. Tom's eyes got real big right oh, there. Oh. I had to pot, go into... I had to, pot I had, calling kettle black. Like, like Mike's never gone into a city. Mike's like, I don't know what these cities you are talking about. <laughs> Mr. Mr. I'll rent the Traverse when we drive to New York because I don't want to park a big car in the... <laughs> Yeah. Well, I guess uh, I guess we didn't really provide any consumer consensus here. We all picked a different one, and I even picked a Chevy, which is a weird. So the conclusion person. to that is buy whatever you want. Yeah. Even if it's a gift. Yes. Nothing, nothing actually, a gift if it's important to you. Actually, the best thing is whatever your friends have, buy the different one, because then you have something to talk about. That's true. Yeah, just right. do that because then right. yeah, it's, it's more interesting that way. Because then when even, if like, you don't, even if you don't like the vehicle as much, at least you'll have a point of comparison. Yeah. And then that way when like the Chevy guy is like, oh yeah, look, I have this step, or the Ford guy is like, I have this step in this handle in my tailgate to get easy to get up into. And then the, the Ram guy is like, oh, I have a 60-40 split tailgate. Then you as the Chevy owner can be like, oh, look at mine. It does multiple things and flips down and we have, it's a small bar table right now with the, you know, yeah. So... <laughs> there you go you can just all right well i guess that kind of pretty much wraps everything up uh next week i think we're going to be talking about in a, the electric pickups which are coming like from every direction um gimmick and... <laughs> definitely a gimmick for sure maybe, maybe that should be our gimmick se section we could we could do that at the end because uh is it is it a gimmick i don't <laughs> think it's a gimmick personally we had a, a couple podcasts ago uh, pretty hey, we're long talking about this next about week, not this week. I know yeah. I'm giving like teasers to go back and like listen to other previous podcasts, but we had a pretty good conversation about uh, electric trucks a couple episodes, a few episodes ago. Um, but they're coming, so we'll see what happens. So, so tune in next week, and we will see you then. Yeah, please like, subscribe, share, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Anchor.fm, and everywhere else, iTunes. Um, Spotify now. now Spotify. Spotify. Right. And Spotify. Yeah. All right. Have a good week, everybody.